Mark chapter 12. We're going to finish the chapter looking at verses 41 through 44. An amazing little vignette uh, just tucked in here that is just so beautiful. Story that we're mostly familiar with, but uh, we hope to see it encourage us in a, a wonderful new way. The topic, Jesus asks his disciples to take special notice of the poor widow as she puts her last two mites into the offering. The title of our message, A Mighty Heart. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're already thinking in terms of your encouragement that we would offer ourselves living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service. And I pray that we would gain a fresh new understanding of that from this scripture, an appreciation of this poor widow and what she represents to us, but more than that, of your heart towards us as you watch her and make comment about it. Guide us, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agree said, amen. It's arguably not their best film, but my personal favorite from Pixar, Monsters, Inc., There's just something about that whole monster in the closet thing that resonates with my inner child. Mike and Sully are great, but you gotta love Roz. She's that slug-like monster in the movie, the administrator of Scare Floor F, or So You're Made to Believe. At the end of the film, it turns out that Roz is an agent of the Child Detection Agency, the CDA. She reveals that she was undercover for two and a half years at Monsters, Inc., and that Mike and Sully nearly ruined it all when Boo came through the door into the monster world. If you're not tracking, you either don't have children or you don't have grandchildren or you're a Scrooge, you know, sometimes. (laughs) All of her lines of dialogue are classic, but the most infamous has to be when Roz says to Mike, I'm watching you, Wazowski, always watching. It's fantastic. Scary. I thought of that scene in... Hold the applause till later. I thought of that scene in particular because in our Bible verses we find Jesus watching worshipers as they make their offerings in the temple. It's a reminder that Jesus is always watching us. If we're not careful, we can think of his watching us as if it were Roz-like and creepy, but it isn't. It's a blessing. It's a privilege. It's something to get really excited about. Jesus draws our attention to one poor widow who puts into the offering everything that she has. In this short account and in his brief commentary, Jesus will reveal what he watches to see and to say about our lives as his followers. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus watches to see what your treasure is. And number two, Jesus watches to say where your treasure is. Will be. Let's take a look first of all in verses 41 and 42 about what your treasure is. Admit it, people watching is something we all engage in from time to time. It's, it's kind of a dirty uh, habit that we have where we'll just sit and watch people. Our favorite place to do it is at Disneyland. And our favorite place at Disneyland is that bench along Main Street that's kind of tucked into the building. There's a wooden bench and a chair. It's almost always occupied, but when it's free, no matter what you're doing, you have to sit there. Uh, It's like an e-coupon for people watching because Main Street is right there and people are going in both directions. And especially later at night when you can uh, have that branch of people watching called parent watching. And what started off as the happiest place 
paradise on earth has now become hell on earth as parents are dragging their kids and yelling at them. And, and uh, I mean, the abuse is incredible that takes place there at that time. Um, it's a good vantage point to people watch, nevertheless. Now, Jesus has been teaching in the temple. It's Passover week. It's probably Wednesday by most schemes of reckoning. And it's just days before the Last Supper and the crucifixion. The Lord takes a break to watch people make their offerings. That fact alone is somewhat startling. Time is short, and therefore every moment is precious. Yet Jesus determines that the best use of his time is to watch worshipers. Whether he knew it by omniscience, uh, omniscience rather, or a word of knowledge given to him by the Holy Spirit, the Lord was watching for one particular worshiper, a widow who would give her entire livelihood to the temple. Verse 41, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Jesus had been teaching in what was called the court of the Gentiles. It was so called because non-Jews were allowed to gather there. That's what a Gentile is. It's a non-Jew. As far as the Bible is concerned, there are Jews and there are non-Jews or Gentiles. God intended the court of the Gentiles to be a place what we would call evangelism. Gentiles who were seeking God could meet him there. Now, the Jews in general despised Gentiles. Think Jonah and you'll get the idea. Jonah is pretty typical of the attitude of most Jews towards Gentiles. You remember the story? Uh, Jonah is told by God to go to the wicked city of Nineveh and to tell the Assyrians that they are going to be judged and that there's no hope for them. And you would think Jonah would be pretty excited about that, the way he hated the Ninevites. But instead, he refuses to do it and tries to go the other way. And the reason is, he has a sneaking suspicion that once the Ninevites hear this message, they will repent and turn to the Lord, and the Lord will forgive them. And that's, of course, exactly what happens. And Jonah, under no circumstances, wants to be the prophet with the reputation of leading Gentiles to faith in God. And so that's the attitude of the Jews towards the Gentiles. They did not care to see them converted to Judaism. And so they had turned the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace where they sold pre-approved sacrificial animals and where they exchanged foreign currency into the currency necessary to make your monetary offering in the temple. All that activity made it unwelcome to Gentiles. It was impossible for them to learn about God and nobody was there to teach them about God. And that's why Jesus overturned the tables and drove out the merchandisers. He sought to restore the court of the Gentiles to its original purpose. Now the action in our verses takes place in the next courtyard further in. It's called the court of the women. It was so called because Jewish women could go that far but no further. In the court of the women was the treasury where free will offerings could be made. And we'll talk about how those offerings were made. But I was thinking about today how offerings are made. You have a variety of ways of uh, receiving offerings in the church. There's a lot of churches like the agape box, they call it, or the offering box. And, and they just leave it at that. And uh, if you want to give something to the church, you put it in the box. We like the box, but we also see receiving a live offering as an act of worship. 
uh, as we'll talk about in a minute, giving is an act of worship, and so we make time for it in our services. There are a number of other electronic options some churches have adopted. Uh, You can have your bank send a check. You can make your offering via PayPal. Some churches have installed ATMs in their lobby to encourage you to give. Uh, We're probably going to draw a line there. Uh, We're going to install ours on the stage. No, I'm just kidding. In the first century temple, in the treasury, there were 13 receptacles for receiving contributions. They were chests, but they were called shofar because of their trumpet-like shape. And so there would be a chest on the bottom, and it would come up in a big trumpet shape, like a vase or a vase, depending on your culture. Uh, But it looked like a trumpet. uh, Each bore an inscription indicating what the money would be used for. On six of them always was the inscription free will offerings. The other seven would change from time to time as there would be designated offerings. The shape and the size and the material used for the opening necessitated putting in just a few coins at a time. It would kind of bottleneck there. It wasn't very wide. Have you used those coin counting machines, those electronic ones? You've got like a bucket of 3,000 coins and you're pouring it in and they're trying to get through this little tiny slot and they're falling all over the ground and and then perfectly good coins and slugs are coming out, you know, as not not valid. And it's, it's quite a process and it's very loud. It's extremely loud. You can hear it all over the store. At Christmas time, we watch the version of Scrooge that stars Mr. Magoo as Ebenezer Scrooge. How many of you find that a favorite? God bless you. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's one of our all-time favorites. Some of us, at least. But anyway, uh, no, it's it's a great it's a great. uh, Who can't like Mr. Magoo? Uh, You know what's not fun about making fun of blind people Uh, but anyway uh, he has a song that he sings as Scrooge jingle jangle coins when they jingle make such a lovely sound and so that's the idea if you were paying attention you could make a pretty good guess as to what type of coins and how much money a worshiper put in the shofar And so if you were people watching in the temple that'd be a good place to do it and you and your buddies could say okay ah, that's copper no that's silver uh, that's, and, and you could try and calculate the amount. Of course, it would go into the shofar. You'd never know if you were right, but you could make a good guess. Now, the Lord noted that many who were rich put in much, either because they stood there longer and put in more coins or something like that. Now, we almost instinctively want to criticize the rich for not putting in more. There's no sense of that, not here anyway. It's simply an observation. They put in more. Nothing is said about these rich worshipers making a big show about their offering. It would seem that they were sincere in their desire to support the work of the temple. They weren't giving sacrificially, but nevertheless they were contributing. We're going to see that these verses are not about money. Not really. But since they describe giving, I think a word or two about it is appropriate. Now don't worry, we already took the offering, your wallet is safe. And we're not going to take a second offering. Giving ought to be a joyful, freely chosen activity whose amount and regularity is determined between you and the Lord. Don't get me wrong, we do take giving seriously. 
Giving is an important spiritual discipline. It really is an act of worship. In one of his talks, Jesus said, when you give, not if you give. And he spoke of it as having similar priority as praying and fasting. It was during a talk when he said, when you fast, do it this way. And when you pray, do it this way. And he gave us the Lord's Prayer. And then he said, when you give. And so it's an important spiritual discipline, definitely something that we need to pay attention to. You know, people have financial advisors. A good one will review your portfolio and your investments and then suggest strategies for maximizing your money. The Lord is the best spiritual financial advisor you can have, of course. It's a good idea to ask him if your current strategy for giving is furthering the kingdom of God. One way you'll know your giving is furthering the kingdom is if it is sacrificial because sacrifice is a final principle of New Testament giving. Let me give you one sentence that summarizes what we believe the New Testament teaches about giving. Your giving should be joyful, freely chosen, regular, and in an amount determined between you and the Lord that requires some level of sacrifice. That's a good summary of everything the New Testament teaches about the Christian and giving. Verse 42, then one poor widow came and threw in two mites which make a quadrants. I am absolutely terrible at converting foreign currency. I simply cannot do the math in my head because I can't do any math in my head. I missed head math when I was in school. I had only finger math back in those days. That's when you had to walk uphill both ways to, church, uh, to school. But anyway, um, the mite is a Greek copper coin. It's the smallest coin in use. Mark at once related it to the coinage with which his Roman readers would be familiar. The quadrants the smallest Roman coin in use was one-fourth of those copper coins. Her gift, therefore, had the value of one-sixty-fourth of a common laborer's daily wage. You can check my math. I'm sure it's wrong, but I think that would be about a dollar considering the current minimum wage in California. And so this poor widow, at that precise moment, she was what Jesus came to see. It's what he was watching to see. She was the greatest sight to be seen in the temple that day. Now, let me put that into perspective for you. In just two verses at the beginning of chapter 13, here's what we're going to read. Then as Jesus went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and buildings are here. The disciples of Jesus were mostly simple, rural Galileans. They were mainly fishermen. They weren't big city boys. Jerusalem was a place of wonder for them and especially the temple. This would be like somebody from Riverdale coming into Hanford. <laughs> Look at the magnificent civic auditorium. We don't have anything like that in Riverdale. And, and it would be, Superior Dairy, what is that? Our dairies all smell. This dairy seems to smell good. Uh, you know. The first century temple is sometimes called Herod's temple. King, <laughs> King Solomon had built the first temple, which was destroyed when Jerusalem fell to Babylon in 586 B.C. <laughs> the second temple was built by the Jews after they returned from their 70-year exile. The person chiefly responsible for its construction was Zerubbabel. 
The books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe the building of what's called Zerubbabel's temple. Now, Herod the Great undertook a construction project of a magnificent temple on that same site, partly to win the favor of the Jews, but partly to further his already well-deserved reputation as a genius builder of outstanding public and private structures. If you have time sometime... Google it or otherwise research Herod the Great and his building project. He was an absolute genius. Of course, he was killing people left and right, especially family members, an absolutely wicked and immoral man, but man, could he build. Uh, and, and some of his ideas and archways are uh, still unbelievably beautiful. Now this is, even though it's called Herod's Temple, it's still considered the second temple because it's a build-out. And so a lot of times if you're doing research, you'll see that they call the future temple that the Antichrist is going to have something to do with, they call that the third temple. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute, Solomon built a temple and Zerubbabel had a temple and Herod had a temple, so how is that the third temple? It's the third temple because the Jews consider Herod's build-out part of the second temple. They don't want to give him credit for what he did. Now, I discovered something incredible that I did not know, and what's incredible about it is that I didn't know it. Um, Very little that gets by me. Uh, Construction on the temple was started in 20 B.C., but it was not completed until 64 A.D., The work went on for 60 years after Herod died in 4 AD, but that's not what's incredible. What's incredible is the realization that the temple was still under construction when you read the New Testament Gospels. Don't you always think that Jesus was in the fully completed temple that you see the model of in Jerusalem? I do. But it was still at least another 30 years from completion at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I think the ongoing construction added to the disciples' excitement. Every year when they pilgrimaged to Jerusalem for one of the three major feasts, the temple would be further along having some new feature they could marvel at. It would be one year closer to completion with something they hadn't seen before. I remember when they were building Cars Land at Disneyland or any of the other lands, and you're peeking through the fence and checking online for secret photographs and things like that until they open it. And, and, uh, you know, in a much greater sense, these guys would come to the temple and they would see something new, something fresh, something marvelous. The temple area measured about 35 acres. It was the crowning point in the city of Jerusalem. They employed 10,000 skilled laborers. And according to the historian Josephus, since the lay people could not enter certain parts of the building, 1,000 Levites had to be specially trained as builders and masons. They carried out their work so efficiently and so carefully that at no time was there any interruption in the sacrifices and other services. The stones averaged 10 tons, with some as heavy as 400 tons. The walls were about the height of a 20-story building. Although the entire structure was called the temple, the true temple was the holy place and the holy of holies, a building of shining white marble and gold with bronze entrance doors. It was said that you couldn't look at it in broad daylight because it was so dazzling. Now listen to this description of the activity in the temple. On their arrival, pilgrims could hear the sounds of the Levites who sang and played musical instruments at the entrance. The pilgrims would circle around the temple seven times and then watch the various rituals, sit under the columned porticos that surrounded the plaza, and listen or talk to the rabbis. 
Now, this wasn't the first time these disciples had seen the temple, but every time they saw it, they said, look at these stones, look at this temple. In the midst of all that opulence, all that activity, the most noteworthy thing, the most beautiful, the thing that was dearest to God and to Jesus Christ was the offering of this poor widow. She and her two measly mites were greater to Jesus than all the structure and all of its activities. All heaven paused as she dropped in two mites while all on earth except Jesus never took notice of her. We like to see magnificent sights. We travel great distances at much expense to see them. Who doesn't want to see the biggest ball of twine? Me. Uh, But anyway... There are sites that are genuinely breathtaking that we travel as tourists to see. Do you know what takes away God's breath, if I might use that expression? You do, and I do. Or at least we can. We take God's breath away when he is our great treasure and when he sees that expressed in and through our lives. Now we're going to read in verse 44 that this poor widow gave everything she had, her entire livelihood, holding nothing back. It's a physical representation of the spiritual reality that her life was a living sacrifice offered totally to God. Have you heard of the story of the pig and the chicken? Who's heard of the story of the pig and the chicken? It's famous. A pig and a chicken lived on a farm. The farmer was very good to them, and so they both wanted to do something nice for their farmer. One day the chicken approached the pig and said, I have a great idea of something we can do for the farmer. Would you like to be involved? The pig, intrigued by this, said, of course. What is it that you have in mind? Well, the chicken knew how much the farmer enjoyed a good, healthy breakfast. And he also knew how little time the farmer had for cooking breakfast. And so he said, I bet it would make the farmer happy if we cooked him breakfast. I'd be happy to help you make breakfast for the farmer. What do you suggest we make? The chicken answered, Well, the farmer loves bacon and eggs. The pig, very mindful of this, said, well, that's fine. But while you're making a contribution, I'm making a total commitment. And that's the idea here with this widow. It wasn't any funnier first service, believe me. So don't, don't, don't feel sorry later when you go home and say, you know, it was Pastor Gene's birthday. And all we had to do was laugh at his lousy joke. Just one day out of 365 days. But no, no, we couldn't do it. But it's okay. Neither could first service. And so we're all in good company. All right. While others in the temple made their contributions, the poor widow made her total commitment. Now, the Apostle Paul told us to offer ourselves living sacrifices. That must be possible to do. And here's the thing to think about. This widow put in everything she had, and so we have a tendency to think, well, I guess that's what it means to, to be totally committed to the Lord. I have to give the Lord everything, and gee, that's, I don't see that happening. You know, I mean, I don't see myself taking a vow of poverty and all that. But as we'll see in a minute, Jesus never asked us to do that. We are able to offer ourselves as living sacrifices right where we are. Because it has to do with the heart and not the amount or the amount of things that we have. It's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. Every day I have opportunities to bear fruit by abiding in Jesus. 
as I do, I'm totally committed to him and my life is being offered as a living sacrifice. When I yield to Jesus Christ, to his indwelling spirit, I am enabled by him to do his will. And in those moments, I am a living sacrifice. Ah, but the world and the devil appeal to my flesh. I don't always bring forth fruit. I don't always yield to the spirit. I sometimes, more often than I'd like to admit, I yield to the flesh. No worries, I can repent. And Jesus gives me endless second chances from his boundless grace to get back on the altar of sacrifice and bring fruit. And by the way, as an aside, if you've never read it or if it's been a while since you have, make it a point to read Pastor Chuck Smith's book, Why Grace Changes Everything. It's a fairly easy read, but it's an amazing read. Uh, And it'll tell you a lot about what we strive to be here at Calvary Chapel in terms of our stand on grace and truth and and just uh, representing the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ who sees me in my failures moment by moment and day by day and is the lifter of my head who reaches out to me and stands me back up every time and gets me into place where I can get back on that uh, altar and offer myself to him. The earth, our solar system, our galaxy, the universe only exist as an environment in which the Lord can watch me, can watch you with the thought that he takes delight in doing so. Now secondly, Jesus watches to say what your treasure will be. I said earlier that this account wasn't about the money. If it were, then what Jesus said next would make no sense. He's going to insist that the two mites are greater in value than all the other contributions combined. And so verse 43, so he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Two mites was not more. It was far less. This must be some kind of heavenly math. Thanks to heavenly math, any one of us can outgive the richest man in the world. The amount you give in one sense is irrelevant. What is relevant is the condition of your heart and its motives for giving. Think of it this way. If you made a contribution today of $1, it can be more valuable to God than all of the other contributions combined. And I suppose that in some spiritual sense, that could be true for each one of us regardless of the amount we contributed. We could be a congregation of givers in the sense that whatever I gave... God says, well, Gene, that's more than everybody's contribution added up. But he could also say the same thing to you. And you have to scratch your head and say, that math doesn't work out. But it works out in heaven and it works out always in our favor. That's how generous God is. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had her whole livelihood. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving out of your abundance. We get excited about large offerings. Over the years, our church has received a few rather large offerings, unusually large offerings, and it's great because it helps us to do more ministry. The Lord is simply pointing out that God values the giver more than the gift. The amount you give is secondary to your motivation. And that's why Jesus could say the poor widow put in more. The poor widow had no idea that Jesus was watching her. As far as we can tell, she didn't hear his commendation of her. 
She didn't know she was the basis of a powerful teaching that has endured through the centuries. She didn't know she was in the Bible. All she knew that day was that she had no money left to buy bread or anything else of sustenance and had to go back to whatever kind of widowed life she was living and trust the Lord. This is one reason why we downplay recognition for giving. I don't think plaques on furniture in the church or bricks with your name on them are things that really honor God. They honor you. And believe me, you don't want to be honored now. You want to be honored later by God. I can't imagine Jesus commissioning a plaque that said, this is the poor widow's shofar. Sometimes you have to think that way. Just Can you hear Paul the Apostle praying a certain way or preaching a certain way? Can you see Jesus doing that? Can you see, hey, Peter, go down to the plaque store and have them beat out, hammer out a plaque so we can hang it on there and call this the widow's shofar so that she can receive honor and so that we can encourage others to give sacrificially. No, Jesus didn't do that. He kept it spiritual, kept it where it should be. There's another sense of this phrase she put in more. We are told in several places in the Bible that we have the opportunity while on the earth to store up treasure or rewards, we'd say, in heaven. While the widow put in her coins, they were being put in her heavenly account as well at a much greater valuation. The widow's two mites may convert to a quadrants on the earth, but in heaven they translate into a fortune where there is no chance of deterioration or theft. I hate to bring it up, but many of you probably lost money in your investments this week due to the British deciding to leave the European Union. The timing of it around the 4th of July, suspect as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you know, the British, they've been trying to get back at us for the Revolutionary War for some time. I don't want to start a fervor here, but if you haven't checked your investments, you might want to wait a while. They call it Brexit, the British exit. USA Today ran an article that was titled, Dow Slammed Again on Brexit Blues Drops 260 Points. I I think that's something significant. In heaven, your investments can only gain. What if I told you some fund could only gain and that it would gain astronomically? Well, if you were smart, you wouldn't believe it because that's how a lot of people get ripped off. But when I'm talking about a heavenly fund, you'd better believe it. Put in more is a great slogan for encouraging spiritual investing. The widow put in her entire livelihood. Are we to suppose that she always gave every cent to the Lord's treasury? I'm going to go on record and say no because at some point she needed to eat. I'm not trying to take anything away from her commitment, obviously. It was extraordinary that day. I simply do not want us burdened thinking that we must take voluntary vows of poverty to be truly spiritual. Jesus once told a rich young ruler, sell everything, give to the poor, and follow me. He didn't tell everyone to do that. Most of the other people who came to him, who he dealt with, he told them to go back to their current life, whether they were centurions or farmers or whatever they were. It was not a normal thing for him to say, okay, if you really want to be saved and really want to be spiritual, you need to sell everything. No, it was, it was unusual. Christianity does not demand we divest of everything we own and live day by day. Somewhere between selling everything we own and giving out of our abundance, that's where we live and where we give. I can't set the bar for your lifestyle. We read in Romans 14.4, who are you to judge someone else's servant 
to their own master, servant, stand or fall. So that means I have to get alone with God and decide the lifestyle that he wants for me and for my family. And you need to get alone with God and decide the lifestyle he wants for you and your family. And they don't have to be at all similar. We don't have to, there's not a common ground. There's not a, a place where all Christians live, where you can't make more or less, you know, where, where, where this is the communal life of the Christian. And neither can I look at someone who is wealthier than I am, who drives the car that I want to drive, um, and think that they are sinning in some way or not spiritual because their own Lord will judge them. I just have to be responsible for myself. While your giving is always to be sacrificial, there will be times in your Christian walk that you will have the opportunity to give above and beyond. So no matter what lifestyle we choose or live at or how we give, whatever the norm is, there are also opportunities to give above and beyond that, to take a risk, to do something God is leading you to do even though it makes no financial or logical sense. If you're the kind of person that thinks I would never make a financial decision that didn't make financial logical sense, you don't understand heavenly math. And you're cutting yourself off from some real investments in heaven. You might give your grocery money for the week to someone who needs it. You might be approaching Walmart, which is scary enough by itself. It's also a great place to people watch, by the way. But uh, anyway, you might be approaching Walmart, and if you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, if the Lord speaks to you this way, he might point out somebody to you and say, I want you to give that person, maybe just go and talk to that person. You might end up giving that person your grocery money for the week. It doesn't have to have a sign. They don't have to say, please give me your grocery money for the week. I mean, this is just a spiritual thing. Or maybe your gas money, or maybe your rent money. Because God asks those kinds of things sometimes. He's, he's like that because he's generous. And he wants to kind of, you know, teach us to be generous and to trust him at the same time. And so this is the kind of thing I see the widow doing, going to the temple that day in a very special way and saying, all right, Lord, you know I only have two mites to get through next Friday when I get paid again, whatever it is that she had coming in. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to give you my two mites so that you can teach me a lesson. And what a lesson she was taught, but what a lesson we are taught for centuries afterwards. Jesus is watching to see where your treasure will be. He wants to heap reward upon treasure in heaven reserved for you. And he'll give you thousands of scenarios where an investment opportunity presents itself, a heavenly investment opportunity. God is not stingy. If anything, he is extravagant. Read the description of the city that we're going to live in, the New Jerusalem. You'll find it in the last two chapters of the Bible in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's constructed from precious metals and gemstones. For example, the streets are made of transparent gold. It's so pure and beautiful that it's actually transparent. The city features, I think, 12 gates, and each gate is made from one gigantic pearl. And the whole thing is is amazing in its extravagance. God is a giver, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son, that which was most his treasure. In his final address to the Ephesian elders, we always talk about a lot of theological things that the Apostle Paul said and, uh, you know, the structure of the church and things like that. But he also said this, 
Paul told them, remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul knew that he would never see those men again. And one of the most important things he left with them was this saying of Jesus that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Those words are not found anywhere in red in the Gospels. As far as we know from the gospel writers, Jesus didn't say them, but apparently they were part of the oral tradition of things that Jesus said that got handed down as incredibly important. You understand that we don't have everything Jesus said, and that many of the things he said he would say over and over again. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't a one-time shot. That was Jesus' teaching. It was the core of his teaching. And another one was that you would give and that it would be more blessed to give than to receive. By our fallen nature, we are takers, not givers. But by God's sanctifying grace, he wants us all to grow into giving. As we do, not only will others be blessed, but so will we. And so a, question, a good question to ask in your reflection time this morning, am I a giver? Put it this way, would anybody describe me as being generous? Is that If somebody had to list your qualities which is scary, Uh, would generous make the list? At some point in your Christian life, it needs to because God is preeminently generous. He is first and foremost a giver. He's given us Jesus Christ to save us at great cost to himself, at great cost to the Lord. And so as Christians, which essentially means to be Christ-like or like Jesus or little Jesuses, we have to be growing in the area of generosity. I'll close with a story from the devotional, Our Daily Bread. Years ago, a lady was filling a box for missionaries in India. A child came to her door to give her a penny, all that the child had to be used for the Lord. With this coin, the missionary bought a tract and put it into the box. Eventually, this gospel leaflet came into the hands of a Burmese chief, and God used it to bring him to salvation. The chief told the story of his conversion to his friends, and many of them believed in Christ and threw away their idols. They built a church there. They sent missionaries, and at least 1,500 natives were converted. All this, and probably much more, resulted from a little girl's gift of one penny for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.